Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. If you appreciate our podcast, please consider making a contribution by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Enjoy. Shoman Katoshu Daigo Soku Baso Sukshin Min Shodai Bai San Hojo Zenji Baso Nito Iwaku どうなるかこれ物そういわく即身即物後にそうあってまた問うどうなるかこれ物そういわく非心非物 Entangling Vines, Case 5, Basso's This Very Mind. Daibai Hojo of the Ming province asked Basso Doitsu, What is Buddha? Basso answered, This Very Mind is Buddha. Later, another monk asked Basso, what is Buddha? The master replied, Not mind, not Buddha. Danger, danger. No clock. It's a good thing to not have a clock on the third day of session. All clocks hopefully have disappeared as far as the, the accounting of time is concerned. Giving up on t- accounting the time is very important in session. And it's an interesting thing where uh, some of us, Yoki and Shuko and I, and also where Shindo learned in the tradition, the sits are much, much shorter than here. They are just 25 minutes. Now, from the point of view uh, of Daiposatsu Sendo, we could think, ah, wimps. <laughs> wimps. But I can assure you, if you get used to 25-minute sits, and the sit lasts 30 or 35 minutes. You die in the same agony <laughs> that anything that feels longer than 45 minutes feels like. It's the same quality. It's the same quality. And our mind is responsible for that. Or oh, since we have this corn today, should I say, It is Buddha who is responsible for that. Buddha. But not accounting for time is something that is very important. There's only one time we have to account for. And that time is what? Our lifetime our lifetime. 
And so even though this has nothing to do with the Teshur today, I want to give a brief time to the acknowledgement of the lifetime of somebody whose life has just recently expired. On November 4th, 2018, Tetsugen Bernie Glassman passed away. You might know that he had a stroke in the past, which he overcame almost completely. The Dude and the Zen Master is a book that came out after that. I did not know Bernie Glassman, but I have met many people who have studied with him. And if you look at his significance, he is really the central link between his teacher and all the succession that came after it. Bernie Glassman was the only successor of Maizumi Taizan Roshi. And he then gave lateral transmission to his uh, Dharma brothers and sisters. But he was really the central link to that. So to honor him, I'm going just to read two uh, quotes of his that speak both, I think, to his doing work in the world because he did a lot of social justice, a lot of wonderful things of making uh, people become witnesses, witnessing the atrocities that slumber in so many of us that came out through others in the past and that we do not want to ever come out again. So here's the first quote. The basic problem, actually, is how to get rid of the idea that we are going to get rid of our problems. Only then can we relate directly with the real issues of our life. Wonderful. You know, canon here on the wall behind us. That's why I picked the second quote. Tetsugen Roshi says, Each of us is an arm of canon, enabling canon to do her work. Like her, we are also overwhelmed. But when we realize that the millions of pieces are all operating as one, then there is no problem. The reason we get overwhelmed is that we are attached to a certain result or that we want to achieve a certain result or that we want to achieve a certain goal. If we weren't attached, we wouldn't be overwhelmed. It's endless. And we, we just take one step after the next. 
So thank you, Tetsuke and Bernie Glassman. I mean, there's some very, very important things in here. I came to Sashin so I can get rid of my problems. No, not all of them. Just one, maybe. It reminds me of the story of the person who says, you know, everybody has 58 problems. And somebody listening to that says, oh, I don't. The person turns back and says, yeah, you have 59. One more problem. And that one more problem is to thinking that we can get rid of the problems. Even that is an idea. That circularity here that we find ourselves in sometimes is quite dreadful. Samsara. The hamster wheel, you know. Running and running and running and running and running. That is what Buddhism and the teaching of the Buddha means to do to help us break out of that flat circular motion. Directly relating with the real issues of our life is what we come here for. And if you have looked outside, now it's clear again. Ten minutes ago, there was dense fog. You couldn't even see the trees. And the same thing happens in our mind. Sometimes the wind comes and clears out the fog. Then the wind is gone and it rises again, maybe from the ground. (laughs) And so that's how it is. That's how it is. We have to learn to live in the fog when the fog manifests and not get overwhelmed. One step after the next. A very good thing to keep in mind when walking in the fog or in the dark. Always feel with your feet where you're going. So there's one more mention I wanted to make. I read the koan in the traditional way, not because we want all of us to become uh, Japanese, no, it is, uh, I do it out of respect for uh, my ordination teacher, Joshu Roshi, who is up here on the Butsudan with the other Innen teachers. He always read it that way. And it was quite heartbreaking the older he got to see 
him sitting up on that high Tesho chair and fumbling for the words that he had spoken so often. And doing it this way is paying back the respects to those who have brought us this wonderful tradition. And then, of course, we have to read it in English because we need to talk about it in a way that we can understand. The first part, we don't even have to understand it. It's just giving ourselves fully to some activity. In this case, it's just reading. In chanting, it is just chanting without having to reflect upon uh, what it means. It means something if we put our life and our breath into it. When we think with it already, whatever the thinking take, takes up is not with it. And somebody mentioned to me in Doksan that another Buddhist teacher from a different tradition recently reminded that person of the fact that most of Buddhism is a devotional practice. Would you say that Zen is a devotional practice? It's, it's come on, it's election day, you can vote. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. I think Zen is a very, very devotional practice, but not devotional in the sense that we devote us to some external kind of thing, but we devote ourselves to the process of being here, of presence. Devotion is full presence. Full presence also means that we completely disappear. If somebody who is devoted to the Buddha and understands it from a point of view of, let's say, a theistic kind of way, or that is the Buddha who's waiting in the pure land once we die. And if they really, really get into their nenbutsu and they completely disappear, how is that different from Zazen? How is that different from our chanting? Namudaibosa. Same thing. Same thing. So I think Buddhism is very, very devotional. And so is Zen Buddhism. Not in a religious sense, but in a sense of full presence and fully being here and fully manifesting ourselves in whatever we do. Some of the things we don't like to do, we also have to do fully. If you mess up, don't do it halfway. Really mess up royally, you know? Just a little mess up. No, go out for it and fail. There is this wonderful quote that I bring up sometimes. Uh, Samuel Beckett, 
One person already laughing. Yeah. <laughs> ever tried, ever failed, don't matter. Try again, fail again, fail better. Devote yourself to failing. Don't be afraid of it. I make mistakes all the time. And they provide opportunities to all of us. Sometimes doing this ceremony here, uh, like Shingiroshi does the same thing, is it is like Nenbutsu. Yeah? You have to remind yourself, go to the Butsudan, go to the Butsudan, go to the Butsudan, go to the Butsudan, now, now, incense, 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 pow, 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 pow. Yeah? <laughs> and by doing things like that, eventually it's not the words, it is the motion that is in it. And it is... So becoming the, world, the, the, the wordless expression of one's intentions, even if they might be very deliberate. All we do here in terms of formal practice is deliberate. You couldn't pay somebody to come up with this stuff here, right? <laughs> It has taken thousands of years to come up with it. Some of it seems a thousand years old. But that is the wonderful thing, that when we do it, we can give it life. And there it is. There is no thousand years. There is eternity manifest in that very moment where we bow. When we pick up the Saba, you know what the Saba is? the offering at the meal. And we put it out. It has a meaning. We are feeding the hungry ghosts. We are giving ourselves away, even in the process of doing something that is really self-centered, eating. Eating is something that we have to do. And it's a wonderful uh, demonstration of that conundrum we are in, you know. In order to help others, we got to eat. And when we eat, we necessarily take life. We take life even if we eat vegetarian. Those vegetables grow. There are some people who socialize with vegetables, like gardeners, and they will be able to tell you that the plants speak to them. So even when we eat vegetables, we create some kind of karma. So how we eat and how we express that conundrum we are in is very, very, very important in this practice. So giving the saba and offering a little bit of the food to a hungry ghost 
is also a commitment to use the energy derived from the food to manifest ourselves as bodhisattvas. All the meal sutras tell us about that. They prepare us before the meal not to evaluate the food. How long did it take to make this? Couldn't be too long. Not to judge it. Not to just take it without giving our heart, mind to it. Very important. There's even one more thing that is more basic than that. You all do it. Yeah, yeah, the good old breath. Yeah, breathing. Even here, there are some organisms in this air. They get stuck on the little hairs, the cilia, in the nose or somewhere further down. And what does our body do? It kills them. It makes sure that we don't get sick. So how can we reconcile that we are creating harm just by our mere existence? It's a profound question. It's a profound question that we all have to answer for ourselves. So let's talk a little bit about this case. Case five. Taibai Hojo of the Ming province asked Baso Doitsu, What is Buddha? Baso answered, This very mind is Buddha. Later, another monk asked Baso, What is Buddha? The master replied, not mind, not Buddha. It sounds vaguely familiar. Has anyone been working on the Mumonkan? Hmm? This very case five appears split into two cases in the Mumonkan, the gateless gate. There it is, is, uh, Mumonkan, Uh, case 30 and case 33. Here in the Shumon Katoshu entangling vines in this collection, it appears in one case. So let's look at who is appearing in this case. Dai Bai Hojo. He lived from 752 until 839. He appears in the Shumon Katoshu in two cases. So that, that's uh, not too many. Two cases out of over 200. He, uh, 
He was born in the, uh, nowadays the province is called Hubei. And he studied Buddhist doctrine for 30 years before he ran across his Zen teacher. 30 years is a long time. When you think of the Chinese history and Buddhism, you know first came the scriptures, they were translated, and all kinds of script, scriptorial-based teachings were there. When we chant nowadays the Heart Sutra in the Sino-Japanese version, or as we did this morning, the Diamond Sutra, those are translations from the Sanskrit into Chinese. So there was a whole generation of translators. One of them was Kumara Jiva, who is the one who transliterated, I would say, the Diamond Sutra. And when you listen to it, you know, Chinese characters and ideographs are very, very different than Sanskrit. In Sanskrit, the whole word means something like prajnaparamita. In Chinese, one character can mean a whole word. Now, of course, there is no character for prajnaparamita because it's an Indian concept that was introduced to China. So what did the translators do? They started translating the sound. Hanyaharamita, that's how we read it nowadays. Hanyaharamita in the Sino-Japanese. Prajnaparamita. And it's... It's six characters for one word. So he studied that. There was a lot of looking at characters, and maybe, I don't know if he had access to the sources of the Buddhist text. Probably not, because there was a couple, maybe a hundred years before. He lived from 752 until 839. So, he joined the Zen monastery under Baso Doizu. Baso Doizu is a little older than Daibai Hojo, he lived from 709 until 788. Can you tell me who Basso's teacher was? You chanted every night in the Teidai temple. Oh, no cheating. No cheating. Oh, now I see. Yeah, Nangaku Ejo. Yeah, Nangaku Ejo. Yeah, see, he was even faster than cheating. <laughs> Nangaku Eijo, right. So, Baso Doitsu, the character Ba, you know what it means? It means horse, really. That was the family name. The family name was Ma in Chinese, or Ba in, in Japanese. And the So just means ancestor the ancestor from the, fam from the Ba family, Baso. Baso. And his monk's name, Do Itsu. Do is Michi. 
the way, the Tao. And Ichi means one. One way. One way. So he was born in 709, as I said, in a different province in Sichuan. And what we know about him is mainly from one work, and that is called The Transmission of the Lamp, which writes the Zen history. And I think it's, it's really doubted how close that is to reality. But it's a beautiful story anyway. So, so this transmission of the lamp uh, writes about Basso as a grown-up. It says, his appearance was remarkable. He strode along like a bull and glared about like a tiger. If he stretched out his tongue, he could reach it over his nose. <laughs> On the soles of his feet were imprinted two circular marks. There's no way that can be true, right? <laughs> Somebody born with tattoos on their feet? Probably not. But it is, again, an expression here that makes us think about that he was a very special person. The human parts we talked about a couple of days ago was lost over history, even though I find it more interesting than these stories that are doubtful at best. So he joined with Basso, and uh, you know Basso was one of the first masters who started shouting, hitting, and doing things like that. Uh, you probably know the story about Basso's most uh, best-known student, Yakujo Ikai, you know? Sometimes we have wild geese here, yeah. And the, and the story, who wants to tell it? Now, Kimpo, you know it, right? Well, I can't remember exactly what he says, but... Yeah. But they, they are walking about and there are some wild geese or ducks or whatever. And they disturb them. What do the ducks do? They, they flew off. So Paso asks Yakujo, Where have they gone? And Yakujo says, Oh, they flew away. Now comes the part, right? What does Bazu do? He grabs his nose and turns it around and twists it. So where have they gone? You say they have gone away? Very, very hands-on, literally. Zen teaching that uh, I would not, unless a Zen teacher has a very good lawyer nowadays, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> so 
Daibai Hojo, he was Baso's successor. And he had his awakening after the first half of this koan. So after he asked uh, Baso Doitsu, what is Buddha? Baso answered, this very mind is Buddha. In the Chinese, it's four characters. Soku, this very. Shin, Kokoro. Same character, Soku, Butsu, Buddha. Four characters. And that's all it took. He had a deep awakening. And what did he do right then? He ran off. Where do Chinese Zen masters run? To the mountains, to the mountains. So he ran off, and first he looked at Mount Tiantai. But it was not remote enough. Finally, he entered the remote peaks of the grand, great plum mountains. Great plum. And that's where his name comes from. Dai means great, and Bai is Ume, plum. And he built a hut deep in the wilderness. He ate wild food from the local trees, such as pine and cedar nuts. It is described that he made his clothes from the leaves of the lotus plant, harvesting it from the local ponds. And his life was devoted to zazen, meditation, meditation, meditation. And he remained in this seclusion for many years. And unlike his fellow, or many of his fellow Zen masters, nobody discovered him. And he didn't want to be discovered. There were no patrons who, we, who were bringing offerings out into the wild. No, he just lived by himself. But as it goes, one day, another monk was heading off into the woods, into the mountains. And he went into the region of the great plum mountains to cut himself a staff. And he searched and searched, and he got deeper and deeper into the mountains until he ran across Daibai. They introduced themselves to each other, and the monk asked the hermit, Daibai, Oh, master, how long have you been here? And Daibai replied, I see the trees turn green in the spring and yellow in autumn. But don't count the months and years. No clock. No calendar. The monk 
later asked Dai Bai before he, when he found his stick, so how, how do I get out of here? <laughs> what is the path down off this mountain? And Dai Bai said, go follow the stream. Thanks, see you later. He went to the stream, he followed the stream and found his way out of the mountains. Now, of course, an encounter like that, especially with another monk, is not easily forgotten. So this monk returned to his monastery and, of course, had to tell the story. You won't believe what happened to me. There is this hermit up in the great plum mountains. And of course, by then, the monk had understood a little more of the teachings that he was imparted by these answers to his very innocuous questions. Oh, how long have you been here? I see the trees turn green in spring and yellow in autumn. But I don't count the months and years. What an answer. Probably preoccupied with his stick still, with his staff. The monk asked, yeah, how? How do I get out of here? Go follow the stream. But the monk didn't have sudden awakening. Gradually, over time, he realized that was a very special person. So the news about the hermit began to circulate. And eventually it made it back to his teacher, Basso. When Basso heard where his student had gone, his successor, he sent yet another monk to find him in the mountains and to bring him a question. So Master Basu was interested to know what has happened to him because he knew exactly how many years he had been gone. The monk found him. The monk found Dai Bai Hojo. And he asked the question. Hmm. When you were with Master Basso, what did you come to understand that led you to, to, to dwell on this mountain? Once again, when you were with Master Basso, what did you come to understand that led you to dwell on this mountain? And Daiwai replied, the master simply said to me that this mind itself is Buddha. Sokushin Sokubutsu. Then I came to live here. 
Now, of course, this monk had also studied with Master Paso, and he said, oh, these days, the Master's teaching is different. Now he says, no mind, no Buddha. Here in the original, not mind, not Buddha. Again, four characters. Instead of Soku, which means this, it is he. He Shin, not Kokoro, he Butsu. Not mind, not Buddha. And Daibai, of course, said, that old man endlessly confuses people. He can keep his no mind, no Buddha. As for me, it's still just this mind is Buddha. The messenger monk returned home to Paso to report what has happened. Did you find him? I found him. Did you ask him? I asked him. What did he say? Well, <laughs> the monk was probably embarrassed. Well, he said there's no mind, no Buddha stuff. He, he doesn't care very much for it. For him, it is still this very mind is Buddha. And Mas and Paso said, the plum has ripened. Now, this is a wonderful play on words because die by the great plum. The plum has ripened. When you look at these Chinese masters, you will see very often that once they had their wonderful experience, they went somewhere else for a long time. Sometimes they go into the woods or into the mountains. And that process is meant to ripen them. the process of becoming and making completely one's own what one has had awakened to. And that's true for all of us. All of us sitting on the cushion and having an insight, a glimpse, seeing one's own self 
is the starting point after which we have to integrate it in what we do in our daily lives as whatever it may be. In his case, it was the life of a mountain hermit. In our lives, it could be that we return to work. We return to being a husband, a wife, a worker, whatever you might put there. But we have to incorporate it in that. For, for people in the Zen tradition, there's a specific term for that after somebody receives the seal of approval from their teacher. There's a uh, process, a period of multiple years in the past, sometimes it was decades, uh, that was called the slow ripening of the sacred embryo. Expressing that, that with that, this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. Choto shoyai or shotai choyo, one of those two is the, is the Japanese term. So that ripening. And when I spoke about uh, Shakusoen on, on Monday, that sending him off to, to the world is kind of the same thing becoming one with that activity of every day and making it so that the Zen stink and all of that goes away is what that is for. But even though Dai Bai suddenly became recognized because Master Basso, of course, couldn't stop talking about him, and so did the other monks, this ripe plum was still in the forest and so the students had to come to him into the mountains to receive his teaching because he just had become one with the wilderness. That was his home. Not until in, in, in his 80s did he allow them to build more than the hut he had. The supporters built him a larger, more accessible temple and of course, the number of students increased. One of the interesting things when we learn about Zen masters is always to look at how they departed from this world. So for Dai Bai Hojo, the story goes this way. One day, Master Daibai said to his disciples, when it comes, it can't be held back. When it goes, it can't be pursued. As the master paused, Everybody heard the sound of a squirrel outside. The master said, it's just this, not something else. Each of you uphold and sustain it well.
and he died. When it comes, it can't be held back. When it goes, it can't be pursued. Happens in Zazen, doesn't it? Whatever comes, when it comes, it can't be held back. And it could be anything. It could be horrible pain. When it comes, you can't hold it back. It could be sublime samadhi. And if you try to hold on to it, it's like holding the piece of wet soap, you know? It's gone. And then your hand is wet with soap. Then you can't even hold on to anything else. Letting things come, letting things go, not pursuing, not holding back. And then came the little squirrel and made some noises out there. There are all kinds of noises we can hear. And we can use them as an entrance point into this activity of letting come and letting go. It is just this, not something else. Just this. And all of this wisdom that he had here came from Basso saying, this very mind is Buddha. This very mind is Buddha. And also saying, not mind, not Buddha. The only part of our brain that has difficulty with this is the thinking dualistic mind. Because we always tend to think logically. And logic leads us down a very, very straight path where things are clear. And there is a place for that. But we can't use that same rule for everything that happens in our lives, in this, what we do here. We cannot use that. Some people think that when Basu said, this very mind is Buddha, he was referring to the uh, Lankavatara Sutra. But that's that's too much of a Buddhist scriptorial kind of reference. You know, the Lankavatara Sutra talks about mind is Buddha. There's a nice connection here because so in Shaku, when he became a Roshi, his uh, room name, his chamber name is, we chanted it, we chanted every day actually, Ryoga Kutsu. Kutsu means then. And Ryoga, Ryoga Kyo 
is the Lankavatara Sutra. So it's the Lankavatara Den. That was his name. So it talks about concepts from Yogacara and Buddha nature. But the really important thing here still is that even though it talks about the primacy of consciousness, Vijnana, it talks about emptiness as well. Shunyata, Shunyata and Anatta, the non-abiding nature of, as we hear it every day in the Diamond Sutra, a personality, an ego entity, and things like that. The Buddha makes clear in that sutra that Buddha nature is not a self, so it's not an Atman. It has Shunyata as its basis, but it is empty of self-nature. There's this other word that I use sometimes that I've learned uh, from uh, Victor Hori, Sogen, and Shunyata is the absence of Shvabhava. I should ask Osman because he, he heard about it when we drove here from Boston. <laughs> no Schwabhava, no fixated uh, selfhood. Doesn't mean it's not there. It's there. That's the nose twisting and all of that. But Buddha nature is also described in there as the Tathata, Tathagata Garba. Tathagata Garba, the realm of the Tathagata, the realm of Buddha nature, as an expression of the activity of Pratitya Samutpada. Now we're getting very technical. Engi, co-origination, you know, all of that plays into that. Do you really think that Basu was thinking about that when he said, this very mind is Buddha? If you say yes, then come here, I'll twist your nose. <laughs> no, he was not thinking about all of that. Not mind, not Buddha. Doesn't fit into this at all, then. But what we have to learn here is that it seems like these are statements that are complete opposites. But we have to learn to see that in this activity of life where we are here, that what seems as complete opposites is actually not opposites, but there is the principle of complementarity. They're complementary. Both can exist at the same time. This very mind is Buddha. Not mind, not Buddha. They're not mutually exclusive. In the same way that you can experience in your zazen when you breathe, that inhalation and exhalation happen simultaneously. We like to think flat, contraction and expansion. And the only thing that flattens it out is when we take the standpoint of a self that puts itself into the center of all of this. I am inhaling. I am exhaling. 
But if we get away from that and we do inhalation in a way that we inhale the entire universe, then we have expansion and contraction simultaneously. And when we exhale, we give that content back and completely give rise and birth to everything and disappear in it. That giving and taking in this complementarity happen at the same time is one of the things in Zazen to be receptive to. When it comes, it comes. And when it goes, it cannot be pursued. So don't start looking for it. But open up to that. Open yourselves to not just thinking about it, to not just feeling it in a bodily sensory way. Bodily sensations are one aspect, but when you put your heart, mind, and your body together, and you really make that simultaneous activity become your content, then Zazen becomes very, very interesting. Also look at the statements that you make yourself. This very thing is who I am. No. This is not what I am. Again, a pair of dichotomies that seem to be oppositional. But investigate that complementarity. And don't flatten yourself out by putting that I am self into the middle as the linchpin for all of it. Coming back to Bernie Glassman, the reason we get overwhelmed is that we are attached to a certain result or that we want to achieve a certain result or that we want to achieve a certain goal. Just take one step at a time. Thanks for listening to this Zen Study Society podcast. If you found this podcast to be meaningful or helpful, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org slash donate. Thank you and have a peaceful day.